Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and if I were going to embark on a quest in a fantasy world, I think it would probably involve submarines and the bottom of the ocean, because there aren't enough submarines in fantasy. Avatar did that pretty well. That's true, darn it. (laughs) (laughs) But it was cool. It was. It was cool, so not what I would have expected you to say. Okay. I'm Kristen, and if I were to embark on a quest in a fantasy world, it would either be a revenge quest or a heist. Okay. Potentially both. <laughs> I'm Cameron, and if I were in a fantasy world, I would probably be questing for dark forbidden knowledge. Mm, because he would be raising, raising people dead. from the dead. Yes. Okay. Though, I mean, we would like to know why, though. What's the point behind raising people from the dead? I didn't ask anybody else that. I mean, do you want a 10-point essay? No, no, I don't. You should write a blog post and you can add it to our website. Okay, anyway. So what we're talking about this week is how to write a proactive character and why that is important. Because proactive characters are kind of what makes up good books. So what do we mean by proactive So when we're talking about proactive, we're talking about a character who's not moved by the plot, but whose choices move the plot. Um, Their decisions, their mistakes, their desires, everything they do make the story move. And they don't sit and wait for the story to come to them. So when I think about this, I think you also have to make sure that they're not just reacting to stuff that happens to them, but they're actively taking steps to make sure that bad things don't continue to happen to them. So like Harry Potter, right? Book five. We all know that Umbridge is a terrible teacher and Voldemort is going to bring an attack and Harry doesn't just say, hey, let's sit and wait and see what happens. He gets a group of people together because of Hermione, really, but he does make the choice Mm -hmm. and starts the DA. So he's taking steps to make sure that, you know, he has control of his own destiny. There's a number of things that are maybe a little questionable about the opening of Hunger Games, but <laughs> the fact that rather than Katniss's name just getting drawn, that she volunteers to take the place yeah. of her sister is fantastic. She's a much more compelling character as a result, and it tells us a lot about her too. Absolutely. It does so many things for building who she is, what she cares about, the motivations moving her forward. And then just on top of it, like, this is happening. There's this outside influence that forced the choice upon her. But, like, she could have let her sister be taken. But (laughs) the fact that she makes the choice, it just makes so much more meaning to everything else that happens. Mm -hmm. Actually, when we were talking about this, or writing about it on our outline beforehand, I was thinking about a book I wrote a couple of years ago where my agent highlighted the inciting incident, which it's a Peter Pan retelling, but it's also kind of a portal fantasy where the main character, she really needs to figure out what's going on with her her mom her mom is really sick and this guy shows up and attacks her pretty much and he tries to take her necklace that her mom gave to her and um she realized or she accidentally like ignites this necklace and then gets sent through a portal to the place where her mom got sick so she can figure out what happened to her mom but my agent said this is happening to your character she accidentally got sent through to this portal world and as an inciting incident that's very very weak instead of her deciding to go and so when i rewrote that book i had her 
figuring out that this kid was trying to get her necklace and then making him take her through with him. So it changed a whole lot about who she was and it made her a much more interesting character because she was taking control rather than like falling through by accident. Toss a quarter in the last airbender jar again for today. You don't know about it initially, but one of the entire reasons that Aang takes his hundred year trip through history is because he chooses to run away. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. We've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but why is it so important to have a protagonist that is actively taking control of their own destiny? If a story just happens to you, it's not really a story. It's like a series of misfortunes or good fortunes. And it's not nearly as interesting as someone going after what they want. It can be really difficult to show off how interesting and actually a person your character is if stuff just happens to them. If you have something just happening to them, one like, well, you know, you just replace them with a rock <laughs> that the plot can happen to, then what was the point of the character? In real life, not everyone is super protaggy. But if you're following someone that you're gonna be invested with for a very long time, and the point is to be entertained and not bored, then it's great if your main character is going to make things happen by showing off that they are in fact a person who wants things. That's the sexy lamp test, right? Like if a character can be replaced by like those the leg lamps, then, <laughs> then it's not a good character. So mm -hmm. that's a really good point. You don't want your protag to be a sexy lamp. You want them to protag. I want my protag to be a sexy lamp. As long as they're making choices, fine. <laughs> but I think in addition to that, I think that a lot of people read books in order to like experience a story or experience something that they wouldn't be able to do in, in real life or to watch a character make choices that they might not be brave enough to make. With Harry Potter, for instance, we already talked about book five. In book one, when they realize that Snape, it's not really Snape, spoilers, sorry guys. It's not really Snape, but when they follow Snape down past the three-headed dog and past all of the trials and stuff that they have set up so people can't get the stone that he knows Voldemort wants, he doesn't fall into the chamber and be like, oh, look, I'm here and now I get to fight Voldemort because that's not very interesting. The fact that he chooses to like go fight the dog, not really fight it, but play to play some music and get past it. And then he fights the devil's snare and then like the characters, okay, fine, there's not fighting happening, but they're making active decisions to put themselves in danger in yeah. order to, to accomplish something that's great. And I feel like in my life, I would be probably too scared to do those things. And so reading about Harry doing them is really interesting to me. I think one of the other really important points about why character protagonism is so important is that in terms of entertainment slash emotional fulfillment from a novel, character development is like, you know, one of those huge pillars. You want to see an arc for your character from the beginning to the end of the book. And in order for a character to change, they need to make choices. Um, stuff can happen to them, and it's very easy to have your character go in a negative direction just based on stuff that happens to them. But if you want meaningful, positive character change, I don't know if you can do that without having them make without it choices feeling cheap anyway yeah yeah i actually have it work yeah i think it's worth pointing out though that even in like slower paced books you still need your protagonist to be making decisions and being proactive mm -hmm. like i i just think about the slow regard of silent things because that is truly the slowest book i have ever read where nothing happens but it's beautiful and still engages you the whole time and i think it's because ari who's the central character is making decisions, even though they're very small ones, but that tells a lot about her and where she is and how she feels. And so she has a goal and she's moving forward. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I think it doesn't really matter what the goal is. Like it doesn't have to be life and death as long as we have significant, sufficient um, motivation for why we should care about it. Sure. I think we hit this a lot on this podcast, but in order to write a story, you need to have a character who wants something 
and there will be something that happens to them if they don't get it. Yeah, something standing in their way. Yeah, which are the exactly. stakes. How can you tell if you are in the wrong point of view, if your character is not protagging in the right way because there's another character that is actually the one who's doing all of the decision making? As a writer, I know this can be really hard to tell sometimes, but as a reader, I feel like it's obvious every time that you see it. I think one guideline to remember is that the character that you're following doesn't have to be the most interesting. They just have to be the most central. So like personally, I would have loved Harry Potter to be about the Weasley twins or Sirius Black or something. But even though they're more interesting, Harry is the most important character and everything happens because of him. And I think... Like, you don't even have to be the hero. You just have to be the one making decisions in order to be the protagonist, if that makes sense. I think you just have to be making some decisions even. Because, like, Sherlock Holmes is the one who is making decisions. He's the one who's coming up with all of the stuff. But Watson is also making decisions that interact with Sherlock Holmes. Like, in the in the BBC series, Sherlock Holmes makes lots of really crappy decisions all the way through the whole thing. And Watson is the person who, like, brings him back to ground level. So it's not that he is the most interesting character, like you were saying, but he's the one who is able to make the decisions that move the story forward. The Great Gatsby does the same thing. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember the main character's name. Is it Nick? Uh, he's, he's the main he's, character. He's deliberately forgettable because yeah. the story is not about him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But he's the one uncovering the story. So he's still right. I think the protagonist. That perspective was, yeah, that perspective is necessary in that incident because the entire idea of the novel, and maybe we can argue about this, is to throw shade on the Gatsby lifestyle. And in Gatsby's character arc, he never has the self-realization that, oh, maybe this wasn't a great idea. So he couldn't be the person telling the story if the author wanted to get that point across. Something that this conversation is reminding me of is the book by Patrick Ness called The Rest of Us Just Live Here, which is almost making fun of this idea because the main characters in the book don't have anything to do with like the big fantasy story that's going on. But because they're the ones who are making decisions and like have character arcs, they're the ones that matter. The whole book is like you only hear about the fantasy characters like in the little blurb at the beginning of the chapter where they're like fairy shades and magic and crazy things that are happening. Girls who don't want to go to prom because that's what fantasy characters are like. But the main characters have like very normal motivations and stakes and whatever else. And even though they don't have anything to do with magic and stuff. They're just in the background. It's great. How do you go about writing a proactive character? I think motives are really important. If they have reasons to act, they will act, assuming you're writing them good. Yeah. I think you need a clear purpose, like we've said a couple of times, and then you have to have them make decisions that bring them closer to it. Yeah. Agreed. So what are mistakes authors make unintentionally to make their characters passive instead of active? Well, for one thing, a lot of times writers will have other characters get your protagonist out of trouble, but they also have them get them into trouble. So if everything that's happening to your character is happening because of a different character, I think you're running into a massive problem. The problems or the yes, but no, and Mm -hmm. series needs to be a result of your character's decisions. Kind of linked is that if you're going to have, if you're going to have the decisions that your protag makes mean anything, there have to be consequences for them. Yeah. I also think that a lot of times characters come off as really passive just because of the way it's written. Like if you have a lot of passive voice, mm. then it yeah. sounds like the the story is happening to them, even if they are actively making decisions. For example, if you're saying Harry was whomped by the Whomping Willow instead of the Whomping Willow whomped Harry, obviously it's the Whomping Willow who's the true hero of Harry Potter in this sentence. Um, no, that's just the way the series is. <laughs> the Whomping Willow is the central figure. And you just He's the it. chosen one. Yeah. <laughs> the prophecy was about him. That would be such a good book. Um, like... On a line level thing, that makes a really big difference as to how your story moves. So that's a really good point. 
So something we wanted to talk about is how to keep a character from pro-tagging or being making active decisions that take them in the wrong direction. She looks at me full well. <laughs> hey, you put brought it, it up. There because I had issues with that <laughs> in my current work in progress. <laughs> so maybe you want to explain what you mean. I have a character who I think I've given lots of wonderful motives to. However, some of them I know are going to pay off and others that aren't. And so I'm worried about creating an arc that will be unfulfilling because I know that if the character chases this thing they want, they're not going to get it hmm. or any kind of variation on it. And it won't have a satisfying conclusion. See, that to me sounds like discovery writing, maybe. Maybe it's not. I think you're I, not there's wondering. definitely elements of discovery. Yeah, writing. where you have if <laughs> that sounds like an editing thing where after you're done, you have to go back and like prune your story down to the one that makes sense. And then add in any red herrings that you need afterwards if yeah. you feel like your story needs some. If your character is too smart for the story and figures it out on the first page, you need to add some. <laughs> some, some further obfuscation? Yes, you have to add some red herrings in. The Probably. answer is editing. Editing is always <laughs> the answer. Okay, so let's move on to the second part of the podcast. Quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive, which means we try to identify areas that might be problematic instead of giving advice on how to fix those problems. If you would like a first chapter critique from the podcast, go see our submission guidelines on our website. It's litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. We pretty regularly have guests and other people on the show, and you can see announcements on our social media about who is going to be coming on to critique with us. This week, we read a chapter about a mercenary who might or might not be William the Conqueror when he's but a wee lad. But not that, that we have allowed. Not that we have allowed. <laughs> it's marginally rampant speculation on our part. That's true. It's not. It's not said in this. A mercenary named William, who's Norse, in the 1030s, who's Norse and invading the Italian countries. So he's definitely William the Conqueror. But <laughs> okay. Anyway, either that or it's you know somebody who wishes he were. So what are things we liked about the submission? I think there was some really nice concrete detail describing the town that looms in there, and I think there were some really nice time period drops. There's a there's a part where. They use the phrase Greek fire, which is just like, oh, yeah, Greece is a thing right now. That's a really nice line because it's using it in an analogy. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really good example of using voice. details and voice in a way that also gives us grounding detail. So it's a good use of words in your first chapter where you don't have a lot of real estate to get across what it is your voice and your time period and all that stuff. And it kind of counts as iceberging, mm -hmm. the historical fiction version of iceberging anyway. Yeah. And I feel like it's a good thing that, I mean, we could be completely wrong, but the idea that there's enough like surrounding details drop that we can jump to a theory that we think, if this is historical fiction, we think we know what figure we're following, even though it hasn't been straight out said, mm -hmm. which like would be really hard to do given that William the Conqueror hasn't conquered anything yet. Mm -hmm. But it's true. We could be really wrong about that. <laughs> Okay, and I also think that there are some fun character promises that are being made. William really wants to lead, and you can see that he already is having problems knowing how to do that correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely have an idea of where the character arc is going to go. I think we're going to talk a little bit about how maybe the implementation of this idea might need a second look. But the idea of having this kind of, well, I mean, he's, you know, he's a mercenary, he kills people for money. Having a beat of reflection on people that he cares about who aren't here is, I think, a nice humanizing idea. So let's move on to things that might need a second look. Going along with Cameron's comment, I think my biggest note is that William is not super sympathetic. And I get the feeling that the text wants us to think he's sympathetic, but it didn't quite land for me particularly because he plays along with something he doesn't approve of. He doesn't approve of, you know, looting. Raping and pillaging. Yeah, exactly. 
But he's playing along because he he's kind of like afraid of what all these people are going to respond and he doesn't think they'll get it. But this whole time in his brain, he's thinking, when I'm the leader, I'm going to make them change. I feel like that's signs of poor leadership rather than strong leadership. It's, it's not really believable. Like there's a moment yeah. right before, which is sending a lot of mixed signals or most of the submission, I thought William was in charge of the company. Cause one of the things he does is before these wonderful people descend on this village and rip it to shreds, he gives this speech about, you know, don't, don't be like that. Knowing like in his head, they're not going to listen to me. And like, that's not, that's not, you know, if you're going to lead, you have to lead, not get up and talk and hope. If you're, if you are hoping people are going to listen, they're not going to listen. That was well, my feeling. And also, yeah, you don't give commands that you know people aren't going to follow. And then I would also add that you don't then pretend you're doing the thing you exactly. just told everybody not to do. Like if you're not comfortable enough to stand up for what you believe and what you think is right, then there's no way you're going to get those people to follow you when you try to make them to change their behavior. I almost feel like if the, this is super prescriptive, so please don't listen if you don't feel like it. But I feel like if this was an inciting incident where he's like, I need to be a leader so I can stop this behavior, like the first time he ever comes across it, that would be very different than I know these guys are going to do this crap and I'm going to go with them and it'll be fun, except for I'm going to hide and pretend I'm also doing this. So anyway. Yeah, it's not... If we're try- if we're supposed to be sympathetic for him, having the having it that he only molests a woman instead of raping her is not, <laughs> it's not great. Okay, well let's move on. I from want, that. Can I can I switch to a flip side because yeah. it is it is very possible to have characters that you're not supposed to be sympathetic for. Yeah, I think there's That's quite true. a few very large profitable um, series that are that are all about characters you're not supposed to like. But in that case, it comes down to the promises you're making. If we are following a character we don't like, we want to see promises that bad things are going to happen to them. Kind of, I kind of got through this thinking like i kind of wish someone would just come and kill all of these people because <laughs> they're not i don't i don't like them it doesn't feel like those are the promises the stories are making mm-hmm. i don't feel like that's going to happen so i don't want to read for that reason mm-hmm. yeah going back a little bit to something that cameron said earlier i didn't feel really grounded at the beginning of the submission and i didn't really understand even where william stood in this company of people until the very end yeah And so I wasn't sure where he was going, what the purpose of what he was doing. I didn't know why he was with this group of men. I didn't know where their end destination was or why they wanted to go to the end destination. So some grounding details would have been really helpful there. Mm -hmm. Especially because we get a really specific year at the start, but Mm -hmm. that means nothing to me. Like all I know about that time period is that Battle of Hastings happens in 1066 and that's like 30 years from now. And so... It, it just didn't give me any context. I wasn't sure what these mercenaries were wanting or where they were going or what their purpose was or even why they were together. Mm-hmm. It felt a little adrift. Yeah. Which especially since we have this setup that is so morally alien to our modern sensibilities, any kind of grounding purpose you can give will be, I mean, prescriptive. Helpful, for sure. Especially since it kind of gets almost more confusing as we go on because we find out like originally i thought okay maybe there's like a dozen of these guys and it turns out oh no there's 300 of them and i find myself wondering how is a group of 300 armed mercenaries tromping through the countryside and no one seems to care if there was currently a war going on here and you know the the local lords were distracted by bigger fish sure fine Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be an active conflict here so it doesn't quite track yeah I felt a little bit like there was a lot of maiden butlery dialogue, meaning that characters were discussing things that they really had no reason to discuss because they both already knew the details. Mm-hmm. So there's a conversation at the beginning between William and his brother Drogo um, about their stepmother. And I like the emotional conflict that it raised, 
But there was no real reason for them to outline who they're talking about or even to mention the drama in the situation because they both already had all that subtext. I guess that's a little prescriptive, but it answers another problem that I saw, which is that a lot of times we feel really removed from William's emotions and his feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would have been a great place to put in, have him think about the subtext of whatever is happening and and have him really feel it because I've we weren't super close to William in this submission. Yeah, I feel like that plays into my other big note on this that I feel like the point of view was it jumped a little bit. So we had it wasn't necessarily strictly from William's point of view. We had little tidbits that came from other characters. And when we are in William's head, I feel like he tells us a lot of stuff instead of experiencing it for himself. And one thing I feel like writers when they're first beginning don't realize is that third person is almost exactly like first person. You're just using he, she pronouns. Um, third so person limited anyway. third person limited. Yes, yeah. that's true. And so this could be a third person, very, very uh, far back type of third person book, but it doesn't seem like that because we are so closely following William. And so I, I missed the, like in your head, your emotions, your reactions. When I feel like he told us how he was feeling about things instead of just feeling them. Caitlin gives me this, this criticism all the time. <laughs> Do we have any other thoughts that we'd like to add? Um, I think we were going to mention that you might want to hold off on using the name Drogo for oh, another yeah. decade or so. I mean, you do you, but I will tell you that as soon as we met him, my brain went to Dothraki and not France. So <laughs> It's true. Even if it is a traditional name from the time period, there's just a lot of things attached to it now in our current time period. So I think that's where we're going to end. Thank you to Jason Akinaka for sound design and our intern, Aaron Lee. Yeah, Aaron. Woo. Remember, you can listen to this recording wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings, reviews, and comments. It helps others to find the show. If you would like to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast, or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.